your Bibles to Romans 15, verses 8 to 13, and then we will read the Scripture together. This is God's holy, inspired Word, and the only Word that you're going to hear this morning that's completely flawless is God's Word. So let's read God's Word together. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that when we need it most, you speak words of hope to us. God, we are creatures who are so frail, so weak, so fickle. God, one moment we feel like we're strong, the next moment we feel like giving up. God, I pray that you would whisper your words of hope to our hearts, to our minds, that you would speak words of encouragement in Christ Jesus to us. God, thank you for your word that is timely for us. Lord, your word is always in season. I pray that this morning you would speak in and through your word to each and every one of us, that we would hear from you. God, would you open up our ears that we might be able to hear from you? Would you open up our eyes that we might be able to behold you? Would you open our hearts, Lord? Would you rend our hearts for you? Would you give us fresh affection, passion, and hope in you, we pray? God, would you... Strengthen me. I am weak this morning. Would you give me the gift of your spirit to preach? And would you give the gift of your spirit to everyone here to hear and pay attention and be alert to you, Lord? Pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, most of us celebrate Thanksgiving this past week. I understand that not everybody is from this country. Not everybody celebrates Thanksgiving, although we, get to, we feel that way in, in America. We feel like everybody must celebrate Thanksgiving. It was the strangest thing to learn of people in other cultures that they don't have this thing called Thanksgiving. And it was a little unusual because I'm really grateful for the Thanksgiving holiday. I like that we have it. I, I like that the original purpose of Thanksgiving was to give thanks, to give gratitude to God for his blessings, for his benefits. And that's a good thing that we would celebrate that, even if a little bit of that has been lost at times and it's become more about kind of loading ourselves up with turkey and lots of football and family and all of those things. But in many ways, I guess Thanksgiving is a loaded holiday, isn't it? It's loaded with a lot of expectations, we have, we, we have a lot of expectations. It's not only the biggest travel days, but it's the biggest day where you anticipate being with family. And that can be loaded, right? I mean, who here has a loaded family, by the way? You know, I mean, come on, you can, you can raise your hand. It's okay. People probably feel that way about me, you know? So 
It's a loaded holiday. It's loaded with tons of expectations. It's, it's loaded with fears and anticipations. It's loaded with um, desires that this year would be a better year, that this year I would actually share the gospel with my relatives, with my friends, with my loved ones. And sometimes we don't get to do those things. We hope that we would have a peaceful holiday. It would be rewarding and full of joy. And, and hopefully for some it really was. And I think for many it was. But other times, you know, Thanksgiving is one of those weird holidays that's not as joyful as we hoped. Not as peace-filled as we hoped. And sometimes we wonder, why did I expect a peaceful Thanksgiving? When you cram a bunch of family members in, in one room around each other who haven't seen each other for a year, you know, since last year when they did this, and everybody's a little on edge with expectations high, why did I expect a lot of peace in this gathering? You know, others might have been disappointed this past holiday. You found yourself sucked back into a political discussion that you hoped to avoid. I, I somehow got sucked into a political discussion not even knowing it. And I don't know about you, but it's easy to do when you're around family and it can be a loaded time. And Other people might have been discouraged because family didn't show up or they hoped for a meaningful time and it never really happened. Now for some, it might have been a really good time. But really, after Thanksgiving, you realize that, you know, that filling ourselves with food and family and even fun and games and football or puzzles or whatever your thing is, filling ourselves with all those things, it doesn't really satisfy in the end. And so ironically, the the holiday that's meant to fill us up leaves us feeling empty sometimes and weary or tired or longing just to go back to the week. Kind of a, a, a downer intro, right? But that's where we live sometimes, right? We, we, we live that way with Thanksgiving. We live that way. But I still like Thanksgiving because it really ultimately it helps me refocus back on gratitude to God. And, and I hope that's the effect for all of us here is that it, it could help us refocus on our need for God, not our need for turkey or family or any of those other things. And so the Apostle Paul, in this passage, he's actually coming to the end of Romans or towards the end of Romans, and he is refocusing us on, on what's important, on, on the fact that we need Jesus to fill us. And that's what I hope for all of us to see this post-Thanksgiving is that we ultimately don't need the feeling that family and friends and food and football and all those things might provide. What we need is is the feeling that that Jesus gives. And that's what we're going to see in this passage. And the Apostle Paul, he's been talking all about how God makes the unrighteous righteous in the book of Romans. That's, That's the great truth of Romans is how God makes the unrighteous righteous, not just to begin with, but actually righteous. And then what we've seen in the latter half of Romans from chapter 12 on is, is in light of all of God's mercy and that he makes us righteous who were unrighteous. In light of that fact, how do we actually live righteous lives? But now by this time in Romans, you might be getting to the point where you're saying, you know, I don't know if I can do that because Paul's been talking a lot about welcoming each other and accepting each other despite the differences and all these problems we have and everybody has different preferences and perspectives and that can be hard, right? Sounds a lot like Thanksgiving, Different perspectives and preferences and, oh my gosh, you put us all in one room and, and a cranberry dish can cause conflict, you know? We had minor conflict over potatoes, right? It says it sounds silly. But in the church, it's the same. And so the Apostle Paul has been talking about um, how do we defer when we have different preferences and, and desires and those things? How do we, we're to welcome each other as Christ has welcomed us. But by now you're getting to the point where he's thinking, well, I don't know if I can do that. And so Paul, 
He's aware of that. The Holy Spirit's aware of that. God's aware of that. So he transitions and shows us that how we can do that is if our hope is not in relationships, but if our hope is ultimately in the relationship we have with Jesus. If our hope is in Christ. And, and so he's reminding us of where we need to have our hope. Because we need a hope that will fuel us, that will sustain us, that will fill us, that will, that will drive us. So in verses 8 to 13, Paul is really kind of saying, listen, your hope is ultimately not even in the people around you. But your hope is in the fact that Jesus has always been promised to come. And then Jesus is the fulfillment. And that Jesus has proven God's truthfulness. And that Jesus has shown mercy. And that... He is our peace and our joy and our hope. And so really what the big idea of this whole passage is that Jesus serves us as the fulfilling hope. Jesus is the one who serves us as the fulfilling hope. He is the only hope that satisfies. Maybe you came in this morning feeling a little dissatisfied with your life, with where you're at. This is the time of year you begin reflecting on the end of the year and those things. And what we all need to hear is that, wait a minute, our hope can't be in people or food or relationships. Our hope can't be in the people here, but our hope ultimately is in Jesus. And he serves us. And he serves us as the fulfilling hope. And there's three ways that Paul's going to show his readers that they have hope. And, and the first thing you're going to see in verse 8, in the beginning part of verse 9, is that Jesus is actually hope for all. He's, he's hope for all, and that applies to each and every person here, and that's important for us to see that Jesus is hope for all. He gets into, in, in chapter, and verse 8 and verse 9, the beginning part there, that Jesus is not just hope for the Jews, proving that God is truthful or true to his promises, but he's also hope for the Gentiles. He's hope for mercy for the Gentiles. And don't we need mercy? How many of us messed up on the Thanksgiving holiday in some way or fell short of your expectations? Anybody here fall short of your, your own expectations on Thanksgiving? There's hope for all. There's hope for all. The second thing we're going to see in, in the verses 9 through 12 is that it's a hope that's been foretold. And that's important for us to know is that this is not God just came up with this at the last minute, but this has always been God's plan. It's a hope foretold, and that actually gives us hope that God has a plan. Even when we don't see it, even when we don't understand it, God has a plan, and we can hang in because there's a hope that's been foretold, that's been fulfilled now. And Jesus, we're going to see in verse 13, he is really the hope filled. He is hope filled. And as a Christian, you need, you need to continue on in hope. You need hope to get up. You need hope to keep going. You need hope that's secure, that's not dependent on your ability. It's not dependent on, on your weakness or your strength. And if you truly grasp the hope that you have, it's going to sustain you through whatever difficult time or suffering you might be in the middle of or that you might soon endure. The Apostle Paul knew that the only way we could go on in our mission, our calling as Christians, is with hope in Christ. Because he knew that personally. He experienced all kinds of difficulty and hardship, and he endured all kinds of suffering. But he did that because he had hope in Jesus Christ. He had hope in the upward calling of Christ Jesus, his Lord and our Lord. And he's written multiple times in the letter of the Romans. It's not a new theme in the book of Romans. He's written a lot in the book of Romans about the hope that we have. But now he's coming back around at the end to remind the church that Jesus came to give true hope for all. 
That's what we see in verses 8 and 9a. This is really the first point we're going to look at is that Jesus is hope for all. He's hope for all. You know, in our country, the reason why so many people came to the United States, originally immigrated to the United States, is because they wanted hope, right? There was hope of a better life, hope that they might make a future for themselves and for their families, hope that they might be free, hope for liberty, hope for success. That's what drove people to our country. It's what gets you up in the morning, that you hope for a better day. Maybe you hope to accomplish something. Hope's very important. You know, a few years ago, there were some demotivational posters. I don't know if anybody's seen them or not. They were all over the internet. It became common. It was actually, I think, put out by despair.com. It's a, it's a, it's a great website um, if you don't want hope. And the first one, I, I love the, the first one. It says, ambition. I wish you could read the words down there, but I'll read them for you. It says, ambition, the journey of a thousand miles sometimes ends very, very badly. And that's a salmon jumping into the mouth of a bear there. The next one is motivation. If a pretty poster and a cute saying are all it takes to motivate you, you probably have a very easy job, the kind robots will be doing soon. (laughs) The next one says, give up. It's mocking the hang in there sign. Give up. At some point, hanging in there just makes you look like an even bigger loser. The next one says discouragement because there's nothing standing between you and your goal but a total lack of talent and a complete failure of will. (laughs) And it's a fish in a bowl by a lake, by the way, so sorry. The next one says mistakes. It could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. (laughs) Some of us feel that way. Some of us are demotivated in life and 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 those those. Posters are funny because they're true. And you know, a lot of us have seen all those motivational posters. They don't really work. Actually, the demotivational posters work more for me. I can relate to them better. I know that I need hope. My hope is not in a poster. A hope is not in a motto or a, or a jingo. And if I only thought that opportunity, if people coming to this country only thought the opportunity was available to some, they would never come. If we only thought that, you know what, only people who are really truly deserving of Jesus, only people who really are righteous on their own have hope, then we would give up because all of us know ultimately that we're failures. We're, we're our, we are losers. The church is made up of people who are not the success stories of life. It's made up of the hurting, the wounded, the sick, the weary, but it's made up of people who have hope. You see, Paul is telling us something very important here in verse 8. He's telling us that Jesus is the one that not just the Gentiles hope, but he says Christ became a servant to the circumcised. That's our hope is that Jesus came to serve the circumcised, the Jews, to do what? To show that God was truthful, that God is true, that his word can be trusted, that he's true to his word. That's our first hope that we have, and that's hope for all, hope for the Gentiles, hope for the Jews, is that God's word can be trusted. He is true to his word. He is truthful, and Jesus came to serve that, to show that God's truthful. We need to know that. We need to know that we have a hope. And the fact that God is truthful. He's true to his word. He's true to his promises. It says, 
Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Jesus came to confirm the fact that all of the nations will be blessed through him. He came to confirm the fact that he will have a people to himself. He came to confirm the fact that God really is all about bringing a people into his promised land. Jesus came to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And then look in the first half of verse 9. It says, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Now, why is that important? For Paul, he's been writing to a church that's primarily made up of Gentiles, and it has some Jews in there as well. It's a church in the capital city of the Roman Empire in Rome. And so Paul is writing here, and he, he highlights something here that first the gospel came to the Jews, but also the gospel has come even to the Gentiles, is the implication here. And why is that important for us to see? Because the Gentiles, if you remember, are people who were outside of God's people. People who did not deserve mercy. You ever feel like you don't deserve mercy? Anybody here feel like you don't deserve mercy? I felt like that last night. I feel like you don't deserve mercy because inherently we don't. The Gentiles are those who were outside of God's people. They were foreigners, without God, without hope in the world. People who were needing mercy but undeserving of mercy. People who were hostile to God, hating God and being hated Sinning against God. They did not have the promises. People who were completely hopeless and lost. Why is it important for us to see that? It's important for us to see that today because most of us here are Gentiles. But it's important for us to see no matter whether you're Jew or Gentile because Jesus is hope for all. He's able to save to the uttermost all. Jews, the people who continue to disobey God's covenant, and yet Jesus still was faithful to God's promises, even though they were completely unfaithful? You ever feel like you're unfaithful? Are you ever unfaithful to God? I'm guessing, like me, most of us are unfaithful to God on a daily, weekly basis. We might have a heightened awareness of our unfaithfulness. That's good, because you know why? Jesus came for the Jews who were completely unfaithful to all of God's God's covenant, and yet Jesus came to show that God was truthful even when they were not. And he also came to show that God is merciful to those who are completely undeserving. And that's good news for us, too. And so because of that, we can see in verse 8 and the first part of verse 9 that there's hope for all. There's hope for all, no matter where you might be. Hope for the lost. There's hope for Gentiles, hope for those outside, hope for the estranged. You feel estranged? You feel like you're on the outside? There's hope. There's hope for those hostile to God. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you've not yet placed your faith in Jesus and you feel like there's no way God could save you because you've done too many bad things. You're beyond salvation. There's hope for you because really no one has earned Jesus coming and serving No one has earned Jesus being true to God's promises. No one has earned him being merciful. And yet God gives hope for all. Maybe you are feeling hopeless this morning. Hopeless about your situation, about your job. Maybe you're feeling hopeless about your children. Like they're overwhelming, you can't do it. Or maybe you're feeling hopeless that they might not ever come to know Jesus. You're feeling hopeless that they might not get it. Maybe you're lacking hope. You're needing hope for your family. Hope for your marriage. Maybe you're single and you need hope to be single. Not to be married, but to be single and love God. 
Maybe you're weak. There's hope for you. There's hope for the Jews who broke all of God's covenants. Jesus was faithful to God's promises. He proved that God was truthful even when his people lied about God. And he was faithful to the Gentiles to show that God's merciful to people who did not deserve mercy. There's hope for the weak. There's hope for the broken. Maybe you're broken this morning. There's hope for the weary. There's hope for all. Paul's talked a lot about hope already in Romans. Back in Romans 5, he talks about really the grounding of our hope. It's not the first time he mentioned it, but it's the first place where you see it most clearly where our true source of hope is. And, and if you're reading Romans through, remember, they would have been hearing Romans probably in one sitting, so they would have remembered, oh, here's what he just said, where our hope is. And so I'm going to remind you of where our hope is from Romans 5. And it says in Romans 5, verse 2, it says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. That is our hope. That's the hope for all, is this grace in which we stand. It's not in our efforts, not in our attainment. It says, and it continues on, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not that we see God's glory now, but that one day we will. And verse 3 says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. Maybe you're in the middle of suffering right now, and you think, I, I don't feel like I can go on. Paul has been writing to us, God has been writing to us and saying, in the midst of suffering, we can rejoice knowing that here's the hope we have, that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. You might not feel like you'd be able to go on, but you know what? God is at work. He's producing endurance. He's producing character. And character produces hope. And it goes on, it says, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts, the Holy Spirit has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For his people who broke all of his covenants. For the Gentiles, there's hope for all. Our hope begins with remembering where our hope is in Jesus. Jesus came to demonstrate God's truthfulness, to give mercy to the Gentiles. When he welcomed you and I, as it talks about Jesus welcomed us in verse 7, we're to welcome one another. He didn't welcome us because we were lovely. He welcomed us because we needed him. He welcomed us, not on the basis of any merit. And so maybe this morning you're doubting, you're thinking, well, how can Jesus welcome me? You don't know what I've done, Matt. You don't know how I've sinned just this week or this day or whatever, or what I've, how I've failed and what a loser I am. And and really the answer is, well, do you think that Jesus saved you because you were so great to begin with? Our hope isn't in our likability to begin with. Our hope isn't in our, in our efforts or our works to begin with. And so don't fall into the trap of thinking that's where your hope lies as you go on in life. Our hope still rests in the grace in which we stand by faith in Jesus Christ. And then it says, Jesus became a servant to welcome Jew and Gentile. He came to show the promises of God were true. The promise to make them a people, to bring them into a promised land. Ultimately, we, ha- we know that that hope is not fulfilled here on earth, but that hope will be fulfilled. And that's how we can hang on when this life gets rough and when we suffer and when we don't have what we think we need or what we even do need um, for our satisfaction here, he says, you know what? You will be ultimately satisfied because I'm bringing you to the ultimate promised land. Jesus came to prove that all of God's promises were true. And then he says he came that Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Think about the mercy that you've received. 
Paul's been telling us about that in Romans 11. He told us in Romans 11, verse 30, he says, just as at one time you were disobedient. Now pause for a second. Anybody here ever disobedient to God in, in any way? I mean, every hand should be up, right? Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. The good news is that Jesus has come to give hope for all by bringing mercy for all. Mercy, though we were not a people. Mercy despite sin, mercy despite failings and weakness and undeserving. We've never deserved mercy. And that's why there's hope, because he's poured out his mercy on us. And so there's hope for his new mercies every day, because we still never deserve his mercy. And yet he, he lavishes us with his mercy and grace as we by faith put our trust, our hope in him. And it's a hope that's available for all, but not only is it hope available for all, this is a hope that Paul wants to see us has grounds. It is a hope that is foretold. That's the second main idea we're going to see in this passage. It's a, a hope that's foretold. We'll see that in the second part of, of verse 9 through chat, verse 12 of this chapter, is that it's a hope that was foretold. This isn't some new idea that has just come up with. We need to see that it's a hope that's foretold. You know why? It's because we can see that God is trustworthy, that what he said was going to happen, what he said he was going to bring about, he brought about. Now, why is that important? It's important because we have to know somebody's character in order to trust them, to have hope in them, right? When, um, now, sometimes I, I forget, but most of the time, when we go on family vacations or family trips, more than five or six hours, the kids know there's an expectation that they'll get ice cream at some point in the, in the road trip, hopefully somewhere along the middle. Now, it serves kind of self-serving for me because I love McDonald's soft serve. It's just, it's just delicious. I don't know what they do, but their soft serve's great. But the kids love it too. And so there's a hopeful expectation that they'll get an ice cream cone somewhere in the trip if we're taking a long trip. And then we'll have a break and we'll maybe get to stand up and get out of the car and that, you know, dad won't say you have to hold it for another 100 miles. I don't know if his dad ever had that or not, but that was not hopeful. Um, my, my parents were of the kind where we were going on a road trip and, and we were all in agony until my dad had to go. But anyway, um, that's not in my notes. There was no hope as a child in hopeless car trips. So I give my children a little bit of hope and say, hey, we'll get ice cream at some point. This is the tradition now. Now I don't even have to tell them anymore. It's just become an expectation. And, and I think they do expect it because they have seen that I do stop. We do get ice cream. And they see that my character is that I want to bless them. I want to be good to them. I want to give them treats in the middle of a long suffering. Because honestly, eight people in a car together for 500 miles is suffering. It's a little bit, right? And... We need to see that hope has been foretold because we need to see God's character, his nature, who he is, that he's trustworthy, right? And so that's what the Apostle Paul is doing for us. He's showing that this isn't just a new idea he came up with. No, you can see this is God's very character and nature. He has foretold of the hope in Jesus. And he's foretold of it, not just in one way, in one obscure place of Scripture, but all throughout Scripture. So the Apostle Paul, he gives us three separate, or actually four examples, but from three separate places in Scripture. He gives us examples from the Psalms or the writings. 
You know, when scripture talks about um, in the writings that are for our benefit, he gives an example from the Psalms, from the writings. That's, and in one Psalm is written by King David. So from the, the kingship, he gives hope, a foretelling of Jesus. And then he gives a foretelling, you can see in these verses 9 through 12, not only the kingship foretells of Jesus, but the law, Moses, foretells of Jesus. And then we see as well the third source, really, that he names directly is Isaiah, the prophet's foretell of Jesus. So in every main portion of Scripture, the writings of Scripture, the the, the kingship, the law, and the prophets all foretold of Jesus. That's what the Apostle Paul is showing us. And he's showing us a progression as well, how in the first part, it's that the Gentiles would would be conquered and that I would praise them amongst the Gentiles, he, he quotes. He's quoting here, if you look down your Bibles, I think it's in verse, let me see here, second half of verse 9. He says, as it is written, therefore I praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. He, he's quoting King David here. In, in Psalm, I think it's what, Psalm 1849, the king had... He had been surrounded by hostiles and he conquers nations around him and then he adds foreigners to God's people and he proclaims God's name in the midst of foreigners and then he adds them to God's people. And so we see the witness of King David saying, therefore I'll praise you among the Gentiles to sing your name. And Paul is saying that was a foretelling of what Jesus ultimately would do to conquer the nations, to bring all people under his rule, to bring all people under his authority, to bring people outside of God's people to be a part of God's people that they might worship him. And then we see in Revelation, the fulfillment of that, it says that, that every knee is bowing around the throne. Every tongue will will bow, every tongue will confess. I mean, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. I've never seen a tongue bow, by the way. But every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the fulfillment. And then in verse 10, he quotes again, he says, again it said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And he's, he's quoting loosely from, from Moses in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 32, where it affirms that Jesus has fulfilled the scriptures really to bring the Gentiles alongside his people. So not only does Jesus rule over the Gentiles, but Jesus also invites the Gentiles in to rejoice with his people. And then he quotes again. So you see his progression. Jesus rules over the Gentiles. He praises God's name amongst them. And then he invites them to come and worship, to rejoice with him. And then we see in verse 11, it says, Again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let the peoples extol him. Now it's a command to praise God, to let all the people together. This is not just Jews. This is Gentile and Jew alike extolling God's name. This has been foretold, is what Paul is saying in Psalm 117. We see it's clear. He's quoting in, in, again in Isaiah. He says, the root of Jesse will come. In Isaiah 1, 11, 1, it says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Now it's interesting that some have made a lot about when Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises. I think Paul is using it on purpose to show that this is Jesus who has arisen. This is even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. 
And Isaiah, in that passage, he's envisioning a day when the promises for a transformed world will be fulfilled. I want you to um, go over in your Bibles to Isaiah 11. I don't have this one for you on the overheads. I've actually got to look it up myself as well. So in Isaiah 11, if you look in the context of that quote... He continues on, he says, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge but what his eyes see, or decide disputes but what his ears hear. Does that sound like Jesus when he was deciding disputes because he knew people's hearts? He says, But with the righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And then you go down to verse 6. It talks about the future hope of the Messiah. In verse 6 of of Isaiah 11, it says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain." For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I think Paul, he, he knew that his early Christian readers were very well informed. They didn't have the New Testament scriptures, but they had the Old Testament scriptures. When he is quoting Isaiah 11, I think he knew that they would understand where that passage came from. That it was telling, really, of not only what the, our hope that had been foretold that had come, but it would also tell of the hope foretold that is to come. And so he's in using these testimonies of the king, the writings, the, the law, Moses, and the prophets, to show that Jesus is the hope, the fulfillment of the words of the king. He's the fulfillment of the words of the law. He's the fulfillment of the words of the prophet. He is our hope. And the third thing we see is that he is our hope filled. So much so that God, that Paul speaks of him as the God of hope. Jesus is our hope filled. He is the filling of all of our hopeful expectations. He is our hope. He's our source of hope and joy and peace. And the joy and peace that he gives also brings us more hope and causes us to abound in hope. Hope's really important. I was reading a study by the National Institutes of Health this week. And they took a study of several thousand men over a, a long period of 20 or 30 years. And they, they factored in different findings based on you know taking out different biological, socioeconomic, behavioral risk factors and health and depression and those kinds of things. And then they asked questions about hope and tied it to health and studied those people over a long period of time and tracked their hope index with their health index. I want to read you just a little excerpt from that study from the National Institute of Health. It says, men were rated low, moderate, or high in hopelessness. They scored in the lower, middle, or upper one-third of scores on a two-item hopelessness scale. Age-adjusted Cox proportional hazard models identified a dose-response relationship such that moderately and highly hopeless men, now listen to this part, were at significantly increased risk of all-cause and cause-specific mortality relative to men with low hopelessness scores. So people who had 
high hopelessness were in significantly increased risk of all calls and cause specific mortality. Indeed, indeed, highly hopeless men were at more than threefold increased risk of death from violence or injury compared with the reference group. These relationships were maintained after adjusting for biological, socioeconomic, or behavioral risk factors, perceived health, depression, prevalent disease, or social support. High hopelessness also predicted incident myocardial infarction. Moderate hopelessness was also associated with incident cancer. Our findings indicate that hopelessness is a strong predictor of adverse health outcomes, independent of depression and traditional risk factors. Additional research is needed to examine phenomena that leads to hopelessness. I think we know the phenomena that leads to hopelessness. Hope is important and hopelessness is dangerous. Are you aware of that in your own life? Are you aware of where you might have hopelessness? And are you aware of what robs your hope? You know, hope can be in all kinds of things. In today's society, we are so enamored with instant gratification, with rewards, with having people like us and and having people like our comments or like what we post out there. We're addicted to this feedback because we look for hope in in the affirmation of other people. We look for hope in what people think about us. That's a dangerous place to put your hope you know you can see that where you might be hoping in by by looking about where you get upset sometimes we hope in someone or something that can't deliver and so that we get upset we get angry we get discouraged we get sad when we are relying or looking to someone or something for hope sometimes who and what we get upset with reveals where we're looking for hope. Maybe we're looking for hope in the wrong place. Misplaced hope, though, it robs joy, it robs peace. Misplaced hope leads to massive dissatisfaction. Maybe you have your hope in a spouse and your hope was never meant to primarily be in your spouse. That's a misplaced hope. Maybe you have a misplaced hope in good grades if you're a student. Maybe you have misplaced hope in a friend and your friends have let you down. Maybe you have misplaced hope of a perfect church. But once you join one, you realize it ain't perfect because you're there <laughs> and I'm there. We're all, mis- we're all imperfect. Maybe you have misplaced hope of hoping that this counselor or this medical hope w- would really bring change. Maybe you have hope in medication or maybe you have hope in medicine or hope in oils or hope in some treatment or hope in a diet or hope in some other thing. It's a misplaced hope. I'm not saying those things can't be good. I'm just saying they're misplaced if that's where our hope primarily is. Maybe you've placed your hope in food or drink or health or God forbid the government. Maybe you have hope in being in control. And you're going to find, if you haven't already, you're not in control. Maybe you've put a hope and a desire for something or from some status or for some position or to get something. And you find yourself regularly discouraged. That might be a sign, probably is a sign of misplaced hope. The hope that God wants to give us is not 
a lesser hope. It's not a hope that disappoints. He wants us to, to give us a true hope, a hope that he fills in Jesus. And that's what we need to see, that Jesus is the filling of hope. Jesus is hope-filled. You know, when I was a kid, we, we didn't have a ton of money, and I don't know if it's related to that or not, but at Easter time, and I know, I know we, we're not anywhere near Easter, okay, so I know it's not the holiday, but at Easter time, my parents would try to give us chocolate or Easter bunnies, whatever, but they were always the lame ones that were the knockoff contains a portion of chocolate and mostly oil or something, Easter bunnies that they were gross, like the football chocolates. I don't know if you remember what I'm talking about, the, you know, that they were like wax. I think I, I taste a, a hint of chocolate in the wax, you know? And then, or, you know, like candy corn, which is just wax anyway. But so they would give us these Easter bunnies, and the Easter bunnies were this kind of knockoff waxy chocolate. But I, I always was a little disappointed because every year I really hoped for a solid Easter bunny. And I never got one. I, I mean, I, maybe I did, but I can't remember a solid Easter bunny. I mean, I'm not, don't feel sorry for me. I mean, that's a, a, a big first world trouble. I had, I had hollow Easter bunnies. But it, it was, you know, I had this great hope for a solid Easter bunny, and I bite in, bite, I'd always bite the ears off. I don't know if you did that or not, but if you, where you started. But I bite the ear off, and it was just, and it was hollow. It looks so big in the box. But it had like a quarter of an ounce of chocolate if you were to melt it all down. It was empty. It didn't fill my hopes, my expectations. Or, or maybe you like cotton candy and you, you have this massive thing of cotton candy. You put it in your mouth and it just kind of dissolves quickly. It goes away. It's, it it's, it's not, doesn't have much content to it. It's not a lasting, satisfying hope. It's not a fulfilling hope. When we put our hopes in things or people or circumstances, situation or roles or jobs or whatever it might be, it's, it's, it's as silly as a hollow Easter bunny or, or putting your hope in, in cotton candy to really fill you up. I mean, I guess if you have enough cotton candy, but then you'll get really sick. God wants us to have true hope, and the Apostle Paul wanted the church to have true hope, and so he wrote that way. Look down in verse 13. He's, he has an urgent prayer here for the church. This is a prayer for the church, not just in that day, but it's a prayer that we can appropriate for us in our day as our own prayer. And he prays, he says, may the God of hope. And that's important, we'll get to that in a second. May the God of hope fill you. Who fills you with hope? God. That's good. I like it when people answer back, by the way. That's good. It's encouraging if you're preaching, by the way, to hear people answer back. I, I like the, I, I was visiting a, another church, and then I, there's one point in the message, the guy says, can I get an amen? And everybody's like, amen. I love that. So that was great. Maybe we should do that here. But may the God of hope, that's good. Look at that. That's good. May the God of hope. So try it again. Who fills you with hope? God. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. What what the Apostle Paul is doing here, he's praying for us that God would do that, that God would fill us. And that's my prayer. And and I'd encourage you right now, even as you're sitting there, to be praying, God, would you fill us with hope? Would you fill us with all joy and peace in believing? But Paul's not just praying for them. He's also demonstrating how they receive hope and where they receive hope from. 
He says, in the God of hope. May the God of hope. Christian, where are you looking for your hope this morning? Unbeliever, where are you looking for your hope this morning? Look to the God of hope. He is the one who is the author, the perfecter, the finisher of our faith, our hope. That's how we have to hope to begin with, is looking to the God of hope. And then he says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. And so we think, I want joy and I want peace, but how do I get that? How does he fill me with joy and peace? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us how that happens. How do we pursue hope? He says, in believing. Now, what's he talking about in believing? He's talking about in believing what he's just written. All of Romans, but he's also talking about what he has just written in this passage too. You, you are filled by God, the God of hope, with joy and peace as you believe, as you put your faith in him, as you be- are believing. It's in the believing that God, the God of hope, fills us with all joy and peace. What are you believing this morning? What truth are you believing that's not true? What are you believing your hope really lies in? Paul says you, you receive peace and joy in believing that your hope is in Jesus. A hope that has been foretold. A hope that is for all. And a hope that fulfills hope in Jesus Christ. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. And believing the testimony about Jesus that we're given hope by God. It's in believing that God fills us with all joy and peace. And it's in that believing, it's in believing that we have hope and it's in our hopeful believing that he gives us joy and peace not in circumstances not in situations not in people not in things changing but in him knowing that we can have joy that all of our sins have been forgiven that's the hope we have the hope's available for all even you and me when we're weak when we're suffering when we're sick when we're low when we're unfaithful he is faithful to god's word that's the hope we can have in believing that gives us real joy that when I wake up in the morning and I know that I have been a loser yet again or I've continued to fail, my joy is found that he comes and serves and he brings hope to me in him, despite me. And I can have peace knowing that I have peace with God. Even when I don't have peace with family or friends or children or relationships or marriage or whatever, peace in work or peace in school, I can have a peace that is secure. And he says that he will never leave me. He will never forsake me. That God, if God is for us, no one can be against us. If he didn't spare his son, he won't, he won't spare anything that we truly need for our good. We have peace knowing that as we believe. But let me tell you, it's a battle, isn't it? You have to do battle in your minds, in your head, every day to have the joy and peace of God that lasts. And for God to fill you through the scriptures, through remembering the scriptures, through looking back on what Jesus has done and the fulfillment of all of God's promises. It takes work. That in believing is not easy. It means it's a conscious choice to say, I will not believe that my hope lies in these circumstances or situations. Maybe that's you this morning. You need to You say, I'm going to refuse to believe my hope lies in people or circumstance or situation or finances. Or I'm going to refuse to believe that my hope lies in where I've been putting it. Instead, I'm going to believe what's true. And then I'm going to trust that God will give me joy and peace as I believe. 
in Jesus. And we're filled with joy in knowing that God has kept all of his promises and that he's shown mercy to the Gentiles. And we need to, in believing, we need to take thoughts captive. We need to confess our need for him afresh and say that it's always been by mercy. Hope has always come because we needed mercy. Hope has always come to those who are outside. Hope has always come to those who broke the covenants. And yet Jesus is truthful. He's proven that God is faithful. And it's through believing hope we have Jesus that we're filled with joy and peace. And then look down the latter half of verse 13. It says, so that the power of the Holy Spirit so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And there's something significant there. How do we have hope? It says, in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, first of all, the Holy Spirit has to make us alive and enable us to believe. And if you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus, and yet you're thinking, you know what, I want to do that. That's the power of the Holy Spirit making you alive to be able to believe. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit you might abound in hope. And if you are a Christian here, you've already placed your faith, you've already believed in Jesus, you can be sure that the Holy Spirit will enable you by his power to abound in hope as you continue to believe. And it also makes us realize that we're dependent. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to believe. That's good to know because we're weak. And there's hope knowing that we need the power of the Holy Spirit because we're too weak on our own. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to have joy in Christ, to remain in his peace, to enable us to abound in hope. A guy named Tom Schreiner, he says, human beings place their hope in what will bring them the greatest happiness in the future. That is the supreme object of our hope is also the object of our praise and worship. What do you think is going to bring you your greatest happiness in the future right now? What, do you, what is the supreme object of your hope? What are you praising and worshiping this morning? And then he goes on. He says, thus Paul prays that believers will be filled with hope because those who put their hope in God find him to be the true delight and joy of their hearts. Hope comes from believing in Jesus. Jesus is the hope foretold. And he's the hope filled. And the spirit that gives us hope and joy and peace causes us to abound in even more hope. So this morning, let us place our faith in Jesus who is the fulfillment of hope who came to those who were desperate, who were outside, who had broken all of God's covenants, who came to those who were weak and needy. Jesus, who was foretold from long ago, who invites, who first rejoices among the Gentiles, invites Gentiles to rejoice, enables them to rejoice, and then rejoices with them. He wants you to rejoice in his hope this morning too. Amen? Let's pray, and as we pray, go have the band come up, and then we're going to sing a song called My Hope is Christ. Maybe you're, you're thinking, I, I feel pretty hopeless this morning, Matt. What I'd encourage you to do is make it a confession of where your hope is and speak truth in believing. Have hope. Let's pray. Father,